0: Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles out and as you take your Bibles out, hopefully you got a bulletin on the way in the door and you can pull the message notes out of our worship bulletin. As we continue a series I began back in May called Summer of Hope. As you know, hope has been our theme for the year and we've been considering at the beginning of this year the book of 1 Thessalonians, a book that is all about the hope we have in Christ and his coming kingdom. And I thought this summer it would be good for us to take Various and sundry passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament that speak to this reality of the believer's hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And each of these messages hopefully are communicating a nuance of that hope that the, that the Bible gives to us. There will be a total of 17 messages. I actually added one to the series about four weeks ago, and you'll hear more about that in the days to come. This is message number nine, so we're just over halfway through this summer series. Now, when we started this, we started this series in the same book we're going to be looking at today, the book of Romans. We looked at the last chapter of the book of Romans that really set up and served as something of a launch pad for this series. Look at it on the screen, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Paul wrote these words, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." that through endurance and through the encouragement of what? The Scriptures, we might have hope. You want to hear God speak audibly to you? Read the Bible out loud. <laughs> this is the Word of God. This is His Word. And through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we have hope. And that's what we're seeking to do in this summer series, is look at a different passage of, of the Scripture each and every week that foster this kind of hope, uh, this real and lasting hope. Next Sunday, we'll be back in the book of Romans again. Three of the 17 sermons are from the book of Romans. Next week, we'll be in Romans chapter 12. And I don't think, if you're a Bible student at all, I don't think it's a surprise to you that we would return to the book of Romans again and again, because in my humble estimation, the book of Romans is the most extensive theological treatise in the Bible. It covers the virtually the whole gamut of doctrinal truth. It has been held in highest regard by theologians for centuries. But, you know, perhaps the greatest gift of the book of Romans is how clear the gospel of Jesus is in the book of Romans. Uh, Perhaps you've even heard of or shared what's known as the Romans Road. How many of you have heard of that before? It's using different verses from this book of the Bible to share the gospel, the plan of salvation. Even some great Christians of history like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley. They were all converted to Christ from the book of Romans. And so this will be what we look at this week. And we're going to look at another passage next week. Now, throughout the book of Romans, there are really these mountaintop chapters. Chapters like chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 12, where we'll be next week. These are indeed high points of the book of Romans. But each of those high points of the book of Romans are set up by profound argument and thought and details uh, from the Apostle Paul in the supporting chapters. And this morning, we're going to be in one of those mountaintop chapters, chapter five, in a message I want us to consider the purpose of hope. So look with me at the first five verses of Romans chapter five. We'll read these five verses. My sermon is really gonna focus in on just verses one and two. Here's God's word, listen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you hear it as I read that passage? The purpose of our hope We rejoice in the hope of what? The glory of God. Now, now I've already talked about on numerous occasions throughout the year how biblical hope, Christian hope, is not like worldly hope. Worldly hope is essentially this, wishful thinking, right? I hope the Tennessee Vols football team has a winning record. Wishful thinking. I hope the price of gasoline will go down wishful thinking. Friends, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Christian hope is a certainty. It is sure. It is secured. It is a settled confidence in the promises of God. I've even heard it referred to as brave courage. Christian hope is brave courage. And I believe that Paul is communicating here that one, if we understand it, and two, if we accept it and believe it, it will change our lives and it will change the way we approach life. I was 21 years old when I first studied Romans chapter 5 in depth. I'm 52. That was 31 years ago. And the the truths of Romans 5 so captivated captivated me as a young, married 21-year-old that I committed the whole chapter to memory. And I'm telling you, over the last 31 years, my brain has accessed that file of Romans 5 and preached it to my soul Again and again. And I'd encourage you to commit it to memory as well. But as we see this passage, it is that it is about the glory of God. And it is Romans 5, along with many other passages, that really developed my own emphasis and theology that God is all about His glory. The basis, the purpose of hope is the glory of God. As we consider this passage together, again, there are two main truths from verses one and two that I want us to consider today. The first truth we see from the passage that gives us great hope is this. We are established forever in the realm of grace. The believer in Jesus Christ can have hope, brave courage, audacity of faith because we have been established forever in this realm of grace. Now chapters one through four of the book of Romans really talks about and explains Paul's proofs for his doctrine of justification by faith alone. That we are considered justified before God, we are considered, considered acquitted, not guilty before God, not because of anything we've done, not because of any religious rites or hoops we've jumped through, we are considered justified before God simply and purely because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. We are justified by faith alone. And interestingly, he establishes this truth throughout the fourth chapter of the four chapters in connection with the very glory of God. I want you to, I want to show you a couple of instances. In chapter one, He shows how humankind has chosen to make this exchange, to make this trade-off where instead of worshiping God, we have exchanged that for worshiping the creation that God has made. Look what he says in Romans 1, verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, this is obviously a very primitive culture he's talking about here, right? Surely today, in our highly advanced, evolved intellects, we would never exchange the glory of God for things that God has created. We would never bow down to stuff. We would never worship things. This is an idolatrous trade-off. It's a spiritually destitute and depraved exchange. You move forward to chapter 3 of Romans, and he further cements the desperate condition of our spiritual condition in relation to the glory of God. In a very familiar verse, he said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is all about his glory, but we have missed it. We've fallen short. So for three chapters, the book of Romans establishes this fact. We are in and of ourselves completely unable to be acceptable to God. There's no amount of moral law keeping, there's no amount of rules you can follow that makes you acceptable to God. And chapter 4 really puts an exclamation point on that fact. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that Abraham did to make him acceptable to God. Only thing that makes ex- acceptable to God, justified before God, is faith. Faith in Jesus. In fact, that's exactly how the Chapter 4 concludes, before we turn over to chapter 5, notice what he says in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 4. It will be counted, reckoned, marked down to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The only way you can be counted righteous, counted acquitted, counted forgiven, is when we believe that. What is that? The gospel. The good news. That Christ died for our trespasses. He was buried and he was raised for our justification. So as we turn the page now to chapter 5, verse 1, he communicates really in summary form this truth that we have forever, those who have faith in Jesus, have forever been established in the realm of, And there's three things I'd like to point out about this truth. First of all, it is a permanent position with God. It is a permanent position with God. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. The tense there in Greek is known as eris. This is a past tense, accomplished, done, completion. It is something that has taken place. It's not something that's potential. You might be justified. You might accomplish justification. No, it is done. It's settled. We have a permanent position with God. And chapter 5 really begins a new section in the book of Romans that goes all the way through chapter 8. And again and again and again, through these four chapters, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, he's returning to this emphasis. Our position with God is fixed. It is unchanging. It cannot be removed. And in fact, he ties it all up in a bow. At the end of chapter 8, another chapter that my family's committed to memory, he ties it all up in a bow by saying, what shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is a permanent position fixed in the very character of God. And if you want to know, again, How you arrive there, it's not through what you do. Just flip in your Bible as we look at the end of these four chapters, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. They all conclude the same way with a repeated phrase in the last verse or last two verses. Chapter 5 concludes, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6 concludes, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 7 concludes, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 8 concludes, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there any doubt? of how you get to this justified status, it is only through the work of Jesus. And so Paul is saying, friends, this realm of grace has been established forever for those who have faith in Jesus alone. It is a permanent position with God. You have been justified. Not only is it a permanent position with God, also we have a provided peace with God. A provided peace with God. The verse goes on to say, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to note what he does not say here. He does not say you have the peace of God, though that is true. The peace of God is a benefit of salvation, peace that passes understanding. But what he's talking about here is not this emotional, if you will, component. Oh, I feel the peace of God. What does he say? You have peace with God. He's talking about reconciliation between warring parties. You now have peace with God. Now, it stands to reason that through this state of justification, we have peace with God. It stands to reason that at one time, we did not have peace with God. That at one time we had hostility with our Creator. We were at enmity with God. There was a state of enemies. But now, such profound words, we have peace with God. Not only were we hostile towards God, friends, in your lost condition, God was hostile towards you. You were under the wrath of God. But now, you have peace with God. The war between you and your Creator has been ended because of the grace and the mercy found in Jesus Christ alone. Forever you have been established in this realm of grace. To a permanent position with God, I provided peace with God. Thirdly, a privileged place with God. You've been given a privileged place with God. He continues, through Him, we have also obtained access. I want you to circle that word access either in your Bible or on your Bible study outline. This Greek word that's translated access in our English here, it's only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's used here twice in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 and chapter 3 verse 12. In the the Greek culture in the Greek language, this word translated access had something of a sense of formality to it. That you had access meant you were given access. An audience with royalty. You were brought in to the court of a king or a queen or an emissary or a dignitary. You had this access, and all three times it's used in the New Testament, it it illustrates this reality. There's this privileged state and place of access with royalty, with somebody who's highly esteemed shared this story with you before, but it illustrates this point perfectly. When I was 23 years old and Hurricane Andrew, Andrew ravaged uh, Homestead, Florida in the south of the state, myself and, and three other men from the church I was at in central Florida, we went down to provide disaster relief just a day after the hurricane hit, and we were there for several days camping in an in a army camp set up on the lawn of First Baptist Church, Homestead, Florida. Well, we heard word the second day we were there that morning that the, pres- the vice president of the United States was actually going to be flying down to Miami and was going to come to our camp in Homestead and, and look at the damage that, and the destruction. Well, the, you know, the whole camp was abuzz, the vice president's coming. And so, sure enough, he came, and right across the road from First Baptist Homestead was a mobile home park. That there was not a mobile home standing. It had all been devastated, nothing but the foundations, the, the axles, and the frame left on the ground. So, Vice President Quayle and his host and his entourage began to walk through that mobile home park. Of course, this is the closest I've ever been in 23 years to anybody of that stature or status. So I just started following the entourage, walking behind them, And I was inching myself closer and closer and closer just so I could. I, finally, I was about 25 feet from the Vice President of the United States when all of a sudden, a Secret Service agent jumps right in front of me. He looks me in the eye and he says are you authorized to be this close to the vice president? I just go. (laughs) He said, well, back off. I had not obtained access (laughs) to the vice president of the United States. But you know who I have obtained access to? Someone much higher than the vice president. Someone much greater than any celebrity, any dignitary, any uh, pop star. The creator of the universe. We have obtained access to this privileged place with God. Again, not because of anything we've done, not because we have the right name or the right pedigree or the right resume, but because of Jesus and what He has done. And here, this state of grace, this sphere of grace, the the word Paul uses here, it's referring to just that, a status, a place of grace, a realm of grace, as I'm calling it. Later, In the next chapter, he refers to it as being not under law, but under grace. This is a sphere, a realm that we exist in that shows this boundless opportunity. And when we think about these powerful realities communicated in the Bible that flow from the fact that we are Christian, that we've been justified by faith, sometimes it feels too good to be true, doesn't it? Really? This is all true? by faith that we might even fall back into thinking "Ah, it can't last it won't last i've got to do something so that i don't get kicked out of the throne room at any moment a secret service agent is going to come up to me and yell do you have authorization to be here and so paul wants to make sure we understand that it is not possible to be Evicted from this realm of grace. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're standing. This is a word that means fixed, settled. Previously, we were flat on our face, desperate, but we've been raised up with Christ. Psalm 40 He set our feet upon a rock, made our footsteps firm. It is immovable, established, unshakable, permanent. You know what that brings? That brings confidence. It brings confidence in our walk. We're confident because we are standing firm. As the book of Hebrews puts it, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Are you kidding? This is the state, the realm of grace God has established forever by those who have been justified by faith in Christ. That leads to the second thing I want us to see from this passage. Not only are we established forever in this realm of grace, number two, we are purposed forever to rejoice in glory. Purpose forever to rejoice in glory. Look again at the end of verse two. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. As we move forward in verse 2, I want us to see there is a purpose behind this privileged position we've been given. Within this context of being assured and established forever, there's a purpose behind it. And I want us to consider three power-packed words in this phrase. The words are rejoice, hope, and glory. Rejoice, hope, and glory. And glory. The first word rejoice, I see, really communicates this for the believer: a confident identity. A confident identity. Now the word that's translated rejoice here in chapter five, Paul used it earlier in chapter three, and it's translated into English differently than it is in chapter five, chapter three. In fact, look at chapter three, verse twenty-seven. Paul's asking a question related to our inability to keep the law. And he says this, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. So the word that's translated boasting in chapter 3 is the exact same word that's translated rejoice in chapter 5. Interestingly, most of the time when we see the word rejoice in our English Bibles, it's connected to the noun joy. The, the verb to rejoice is connected to joy. So over and over again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That's typically uh, the way it's going to be. In fact, next week, we're going to look at joy in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, which tells us that it uses the exact same phrase here, rejoice in hope, but a different word for rejoice. The word in chapter 12, verse 12, means joy. The word in chapter 5, verse 2, means boast or brag, which is really curious. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We exalt, we brag, we celebrate the hope of the glory of God. Now, there have been whole books written on the Apostle Paul's thoughts about boasting because he talks about it all through his epistles. Let me just give you a brief uh, sampling of those. In 1 Corinthians one thirty-one, Paul says, Let him who boasts, same word is used here in Romans 5, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Galatians chapter 6. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And very familiar, Ephesians 2, eight, 9. For by grace you've been saved, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And even right here in chapter 5, you go down to verse 11, which really concludes this kind of pericope, this system of thought. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice. They translated it rejoice here, but it's the same word. We also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that's just a small sampling of the Apostle Paul talking about boasting, what we do boast in and what we should not boast in. He's not boasting in his own credentials. He's not boasting in his own accomplishments or achievements. And listen, if anybody had reason to boast in his own accomplishments and achievements, it was the apostle Paul. He says, I'm not boasting in that. Now that we are in Christ, however, we do have something to boast about. We do have something to brag about. Again, it's not us. What is it? The fact that in Christ we have a permanent position. The fact that in Christ we've been provided peace with God. The hostility is over. We can boast about the fact that we have a privileged place. We've been given access to the very throne room of God where we stand fixed. It does not mean you're boasting or bragging about what you have done. It's a confident declaration. A brave audacity. Rejoice. Boast. Brag about who God is and what God's done. You know, I don't think this has really been taught well to Christians throughout the years. So often, Christians can seem to be so down in the mouth, right? So, woe is me, I'm a Christian. We have something to boast about. We have something to celebrate. Again, it's nothing in us. It's only in God. Now, in the specific context here in Romans 5, 2, What are we to boast in? Well, that moves to the second thing. That is a certain eternity. A certain eternity in hope, Paul writes. Now, we rejoice, we boast in hope. This is our word, right? Hope. This is what we've been looking at all year long. For seven months, we've been considering this concept of hope. I even told you at the beginning of this message, biblical hope is not the same as worldly hope just wishful thinking. It's a settled assurance. It's a certainty. And here's the thing about hope too that I've communicated before. Hope is always forward thinking. Yeah, we rejoice. We're boastful about what God's done in the past. We're thankful. We're rejoicing. We're boasting about what God is doing in our lives in the present. But friends, we rejoice in what God is going to do in the future. That's why I say we have a certain eternity. God will accomplish all he promised to do, and that is our hope and we just concluded vbs on thursday and that's why many of you are using toothpicks to keep your eyeballs up during the day you're worn out they say there's tired then there's vbs tired right our our children learned memorized this week philippians 1 6 look at philippians 1 6 this is hope i am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of christ jesus You know what that verse is communicating? Hope. He's going to bring it to completion. No matter what state you're in right now, no matter how you're feeling right now about your relationship with God, there is a promise, there is a hope that He will bring it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Our hope is forward-looking. We can boast, we can rejoice in this, but that leads to the final thing that I want us to notice, and that is really the purpose of our hope, and that is this confirmed Destiny. We have a confirmed destiny. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, that is our destiny, to be enthralled forever with the glory of God. That is our future, to have the brilliance, the manifest brilliance of God, to just leave us awestruck, Every day we wake up in heaven, I don't know if we ever sleep in heaven, but every day in heaven, we will be awestruck at the brilliance of God. And I want you to think about this author of the book of Romans, one Saul of Tarsus, a devoted Pharisee to the Jewish faith. He had the equivalent of a PhD in Hebrew studies. Not only that, he he was so zealous for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He persecuted this religious sect known as the Way. He even went to the high priest of all of Judaism and asked for letters of authority that he could travel to Damascus to go further arrest more and more and more Christians. This is Saul of Tarsus. But on his way to arrest Christians, he was struck with the glory of God. That's who's writing this. He knows something about being enthralled with the glory of God there as he was knocked off his high horse. Radical experience of the glory of God. Here's the deal. We know every human being, every human being has been created in the image of God. Regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of economic scale, regardless of age, Old or young, we know every human being has been created as an image-bearer of God. what does that mean? We have been created to reflect the glory of God. There is nothing else in the natural realm that has been created with that attribute. No trees, no fleas are created in the image of God. I don't care how much you love your fur baby as a dog or a cat or a pot-bellied pig. They have not been created in the image of God. Only humans were created exclusively to image forth, to reflect the nature of God. Because that's true, each and every one of you were created to reflect and image forth the nature of God. All of us are basically mirrors, right? When I look at this mirror, it reflects my image. It reflects me. As a human being, unlike anything else in the natural realm, you have been created to reflect God. Think about it. Through our own choices and through our own decisions, we have marred this image. We have polluted The reflected ability that God has created within each one of us. Because we've lived according to our own designs, we have caused it to be not a brilliant reflection of who we are, but a completely polluted reflection. Because we have chosen to live our lives according to our own whims and proclivities and not the purposes of God, we have broken the image of God that He created in us. This is who we are. Now there is still a dim reflection. I can still see somewhat of a reflection. But here's the beauty of the Gospel, friends. Christ was marred. Christ was broken. Christ was bruised. We're going to celebrate this meal that reflects on this truth that Christ was broken for you so that He could restore in you the very image-bearing quality He created you for. And we're going through a process now as believers. In fact, look at this next passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, every time you read the Word, every time you sing His praise, every time you gather with God's people in God's house, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But we'll never arrive in this world. But there's coming again a day when Christ returns when we are changed in the twinkling of an eye, when he restores the glory. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. What is the purpose of our hope? It is the glory of God. And that leads to my last thought. The glory of God gives us a purpose to live for and a promise to hope in. What a promise that is.